the reason why we're not solving the problem is because we view the problem as the news media industry's problem. You do need to flip it and you do need to investigate it from all angles. And the way of investigating it from all angles is thinking about it from the audience's perspective. Welcome to the Crawford Media Podcast. My name is Hal Crawford and yes, I am still alive. Today, I'm talking to Australian entrepreneur, editor and author, Tim Duggan, about his new book, Killer Thinking, which has an exploding light globe on the cover and is fabulous for anyone with an idea, a problem or both. Tim is the co-founder of Junkie Media, a pop culture publisher that Tim and others built up and sold to O Media a few years back. It has since changed hands again, and after a period of stewardship, Tim moved away from the company entirely to focus on projects like the one we are talking about today. That is, the business of helping people move ideas from acceptable to extraordinary, or in Tim's words, killer. I am Tim Duggan, and I am the author of a new book called Killer Thinking, which is all about how to turn good ideas into brilliant ones. And before that, I wrote a book called Cult Status, which is all about how to build a really strong community about your around your business or, or brand. And before that, I, amongst other things, co-founded Junkie Media, which is a digital publisher for Australian millennials, which I worked really hard at and had really fun time for over a decade. Um, before selling it to O Media in 2016 and leaving the company full time in 2020. Yeah, and uh, Tim, you and I have known each other for a while, uh, and I've always admired your energy, uh, and in particular, your positive approach to uh, everything. So I was really looking forward to reading the book, and it didn't disappoint. One of the things I liked about it, which you might be surprised to hear, is that I liked that you didn't shy away from talking about your accomplishments. At the very beginning of the book, you mention the idea you had to start up the fag tag movement and how that gathered steam and you described it as a killer idea. So you, you don't believe in false modesty. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. One of the things that I've tried to do with both of my books now is go out and speak to really fascinating people that I think are doing interesting things. And that's one of the best things about writing a book. It gives you an excuse to call up or email anyone, any of your heroes, people you read about in the paper, and try to get an interview with them. And so I kind of collate a lot of interviews like that. And then one thing that my publisher and I often talked about was how do I insert personal stories into it so that it's not just a collection of other people's stories. It has kind of my journey weaved into it. And cult status in particular was a bit more of my media journey weaved into that. And then when it came to killer thinking, my, one of my first thoughts was, have I told all of my stories? <laughs> have, I, have I given all of my examples? And actually, the, the amazing thing was, as, I, as you write it, you can kind of go deep into all the things that have shaped you, whether that's deserting myself on a desert island, whether that is starting Junkie, whether that's the event series that you mentioned that I started in my 20s called Fag Tag that still is running some almost 20 years later. So it's really quite fun to go back and think through all these varied experiences and pull out things that are relevant to the topics I'm talking about. 
So, Tim, was it easier to write the second book or was it, you know, the difficult second album? <laughs> it was both easier and harder. Now, I know that sounds like a cop-out of an answer, but let me let me explain that. Easier in terms of I really trusted my voice and that was something that I didn't quite know if I trusted the first time I wrote Cult Status. I was a, a journo in my early 20s, particularly a music journalist, and wrote for Rolling Stone and The Brag, where I was the dance music editor for a few years and a bunch of publications around the country. And then when I started my first website in 2006, I was 24, 25 years old. And I then started managing editors and hiring them. And but by the time Junkie finished, there was about 60 or 70 full-time staff. And so you, you were managing everyone else to create content. So Cult Status was the first time where I gave myself permission to write again and to believe in, in my, my tone of voice and try and find what it was. So therefore, the second book, I, I was a lot more confident in my style. What was hard about it was my first draft, I tried to be different from cult status. So my first draft I handed in was a kind of slightly more rambling. It didn't quite have steps in it. It didn't have IRL, which is the, the kind of the practical exercises that I now put in the end of each chapter. And I kind of tried to find a different format for the book. And then after the first draft handed in and I had a really good chat to my publisher about it, the suggestion was, why don't you just try putting it into a similar format that cult status was in. And as soon as I did that, the whole thing became easy. So I think I kind of made it hard for myself by trying to fight against it before realizing that there actually is a really simple structure that works well and that readers, from my understanding and feedback, really appreciate clear, set out, explained structures rather than things that might make sense to me that are harder for a reader to follow. Yeah, because this is a book designed to help people and uh, that structure, just to make it um, clear for everyone, is running through the eight-step process that you recommend to turn decent ideas into really, really good ideas. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. So the step process I've realised is my brain's way of organising a giant amount of information into something that makes sense and is easy to follow. So I found that really, once I'd, I'd kind of, you know, had that bit of that aha moment and rearranged, all of the content was there in the first draft. I just had to put it into a simple, easy to, to digest process. As soon as that happened and it made it easy for me to understand, it, I knew it was going to be easy for an audience. And both Killer Thinking and Cult Status both exist in a similar world. And that is a world, as you mentioned, it's a world that I... I believe in, but it's pretty optimistic because it's a world where businesses can do good and it's a world where creativity can change industries and can help ideas. Yeah, it comes through. Yeah, that definitely comes through and, and so does so does your sort of base level energy. Now, you think everyone's creative. You think any everyone has an innate capacity for creativity uh, and I, I, I think I agree with that. But what I notice about people is that they have varying levels of energy and, and, and desire to make their ideas real. I think you're at the high end of the scale. I think because I believe I'm at the high end of the scale. I've always kind of fought against it a bit as well, especially when it comes to running a business and you've got journalists and writers there and 
you spend your days in spreadsheets and cash flow management and finance and all those things that, you know, wonderful about a, a small to medium sized business. There's a lot of times where you forget that you are creative. And I think one of the reasons that I now have just written a book on creativity is because I really firmly believe that creativity is almost beaten out of us as children. Like it's, especially when we've become teenagers and we kind of stop drawing and we stop creating, recount in the book that one of my earliest um, memories of how I interacted creativity is I used to create audio books or like early versions of podcasts. I think they were before podcasts was even a thing where I would write scripts and press record on a tape recorder and make my brothers and sisters put on different accents and, you know, fiction stories some non-fiction stories and I'd record them into a tape and then, you know, force them to, to, to listen back to that. And I think back at that now, and I think through exactly what you're doing, Hal, this is, you're, you're pressing record, you are asking people to tell their stories and then putting it out there into the world. And there's, a, there's actually a kind of a straight line between that creativity that we has, have, have as a child and then the ability to have creative outlets like creating podcasts, like writing newsletters, things like that, that a lot of people lose that direct link as they grow up or it gets, you know, it's, it's no longer cool to be creative and they're kind of not in tune with it. And I really want everyone to understand that they are creative, no matter how much creativity is part of their actual job at the moment. Yeah, it's something I've said a few times on the podcast is how much I enjoy it. And it's it's a combination of speaking to people, which is, you know, every journalist loves talking to to new people, but also just the the shapes of the voices and putting them together in a nice way and, you know, hearing things that you didn't know before and then passing that on. So let's get into the book. So killer, killer is actually an acronym for the purposes of your book, uh, and it stands for kind, impactful, loved, lasting, easy, and repeatable. Uh, I'm particularly taken by the idea of easy. Many times in your book, you mention the power of a simple idea, and and you actually say that ideas that can be communicated in a single sentence are better ideas. Why is that? There's a real art to simplicity. It's actually easy to complicate things because complication just means that you add more information into it. So think of, think of journalism into a story. It's quite easy to add more quotes into it, add more interviews to make a story longer. What is really, really hard is making it shorter and more succinct. And then there's an exercise in there. And when we, we often used to do this exercise when I was a junkie, particularly when it came to if we came up with an idea either for an editorial idea or an idea for a brand to partner with us, we would have to communicate it in a page. So how would you tell someone about this if you had to write down to a page, then communicate it in a paragraph, which is really hard because you are taking all that information and deciding what is and isn't important. And then the hardest one is how do you communicate that idea in a single sentence? So how do you take something that is big and complicated and you can talk about it and really nut it down to its core principles. And that is, if you think about how ideas spread, particularly some of the best ideas in the world, they spread from people to people. And the way they spread is someone tells someone, oh, have you heard about this thing here? I use the example in the book of Movember, which I think is one of the, the greatest um, and simplest ideas in the world and has now raised, you know, a one point something billion dollars over the time it's been running. And it is so simple because... 
it can be explained in a single sentence. It is you grow a moustache on your face during November to raise money and it becomes Movember. Just the simplicity of being able to describe it and giving someone else the tools to be able to use that single sentence to describe it to their friends and then describe it to their friends, that is why simplicity is important. There's another thing about Movember which you point out, which is that it's its own billboard. Oh, um, God, and you were forced to, to explain yourself to the barista where you getting your local coffee from. And I love that. Like it's you literally, yeah, you're walking billboard on your face. You can't avoid that. Yeah, it's a, it's genius really. And the other genius thing about this, and this is jumping all around the book, but that idea was actually launched on the rising tide of men, you know, a kind of a hipster stream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it totally was. It was kind of, it was kind of at the probably the end of the metrosexual, you know, that, that kind of like David Beckham, lots of hair gel kind of era. There was this rising tide, which I talk about in the book of one of the steps, as you mentioned, is called, if you really want your idea to work and to have the best chance of um, being an example of killer thinking, which is killer ideas plus killer execution, you need to launch it at the right time. And you need to kind of figure out what are the rising tides right now. So what are the big movements and momentum that you can launch it into. I think one of the unique things about you, Tim, is that you managed to explain these things in a positive way, whereas the news editor in me would just say, don't do this, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> don't come up with an idea that's, you know, already half dead, um, played out. Yeah, I, I, just how I viewed the world. As in, I, I'm an optimist, I'm a proud optimist. I think just the way that I view things, particularly the way that I view what is a pretty cruddy time, could be a pretty cruddy time in history. As in, we've just come out of two years of COVID. We've spent two years of being pretty surreally locked up inside our houses and cut off as countries. And one thing that excites me about this time period is all of the opportunity that that, that opens up for people. So instead of seeing all of the, yes, there, of course, there is a hell of a lot of you know death and there's a hell of a lot of sickness and there's some pretty, I'm a realist about the shitty times, but I'm also an optimist about what this means for new entrants in markets, what it means in across entire ranges of industries. And that is something that I think if I look back at Junkie's journey, one of the, the, as I said, the topics is about launching into a rising tide. And when we launched Junkie, it was 2012, 2013 um, is when we were thinking about it. And that was a golden period in new media journalism. So in that period, Junkie launched in Australia, Vox launched in the US, BuzzFeed really came of age, Vice really kind of transitioned from magazine into global cultural phenomenon, Pedestrian in Australia really blew up. And there was this kind of time period that we launched Junkie into from about 2013 to about 2016 which really was the golden age of social media when you could build these huge audiences and brands through social, particularly through Facebook. And we were very fortunate that we were able to launch a media product into that moment when the tide was rising and kind of get lifted along with it. 100%. There was a great opportunity which you took full use of to use platforms, particularly Facebook, to build audience. For all of the complicated relationship that we have with Meta and Facebook and Google and all the other digital platforms, they really helped new media 
or particularly Junkie, BuzzFeed and Vox and everyone who grew around that time, become the forces that, that they were by piggybacking onto their audiences and being able to expand the reach of media properties to people that had never, ever heard of Junkie. I remember we used to publish videos that would get 50 million, 60 million views regularly. Insane. Insane. Yeah. And, and that was just, be, therefore, being able to use that that voice and platform to reach these audiences of which 1%, 2%, 3% would then come back to Junkie as regular readers. But you can build a really decent-sized business off that, as, as we proved. Now, let's let's do a bit of practical workshopping here. I won't call it a brainstorm because I know you don't like those. Uh, <laughs> It's as close as you get to being quite negative in the book as when you're talking about <laughs> you're talking about brainstorms and I was cheering you on. Well, let's take your framework, the eight-step process. Now, say say we've got a bit of a problem in news media in Australia. You know, a lot of the big companies are, are finding that it's not a profitable area to operate in uh, and, you know, the public interest isn't being served in places where news, local newspapers have closed. Quite a few people are thinking about the problem. So it's quite a well-defined problem, but there's certainly not one good solution at the moment. Where do we start? So the first step out of the, the eight steps, I'll, I'll try to I'll, I'll briefly explain it. It will we'll take longer to kind of go through it. But the very first step is around being your problems therapist. And what that means is you need to understand that problem from every single angle better than anyone else. And the most important thing when you be a problems therapist is to stop like a good therapist would and listen to listen to them talk. So I think in this case, the very first place to start would be with the actual audiences themselves. And I think that that is sometimes overlooked. Um, sometimes we sit in ivory towers in offices in inner city Sydney, inner city Melbourne, and tell our audiences what we think they should know. So I think the very first problem is to put yourself in the shoes of the audience and really trying to understand that problem better than anyone else. Can I stop you there? Because that's already an interesting distinction. Whereas most times within the industry, the problem around local news is seen as a problem within the industry, i.e. this newspaper can no longer afford to operate. Uh, and you flip that on in its head and you're saying, let's find out what the problem is for the audience here. A hundred percent. And I think that's the, that's the reason why we're not solving the problem is because we view the problem as the news media industry's problem. So the news media industry is losing revenue. The news industry is losing jobs. No one is reading. Subscription models aren't working. People aren't paying for this. That is a problem for the news industry. But if you keep going to the nucleus of the, of the problem and find out, well, why is this occurring? You do need to flip it. And you do need to investigate it from all angles. And the way of investigating it from all angles is thinking about it from the audience's perspective. Mm. Uh, there's an example in the book that is just relevant to this. I'll just briefly explain around um, 7-Elevens. And it talks about 7-Eleven had a problem where in the 1980s in um, British Columbia, they had a lot of young people hanging out in their car parks and the youth were becoming rowdy and they were stopping <laughs> other customers coming into the store and it was becoming this huge problem. And in order to solve it, the heads of 7-Eleven got together and they didn't think about, okay, how do we solve this from our point of view? What's What they thought about was 
if we put our minds in the heads of these young people, they, they're hanging out because they want to feel cool amongst their mates. They want somewhere to go. And so the way of short-circuiting that the 7-Eleven came up with was to make that uncool for them. And the best way of making it uncool was playing classical music or Barry Manilow music very loudly in the car parks. And all of a sudden, all the young people dispersed and they went somewhere else because it was no longer mm. fun or cool for them to hang out. So I think that's just, that's just like a really simple example of how you need to put your, you need to think in the mindset of the audience. Yeah. Now let's get back to news. The first one was be, be your problems therapist. Where do we go from there? Yeah. So the next thing then is once you've kind of really understood them, especially if you're doing this with a group, and I assume that most people are doing it with a group because it might be a group of work colleagues, could be one other person. You can also do this process yourself, but the most important thing to do once you've really come up, figured out what a, what the problem is, is to then go away and think about it by yourself. There is, I think people rush into, okay, here's the problem. Get, let's get everyone together in a room together. How are we going to solve this? John, what do you think? Hal, what's your opinion on that? And that's not where creativity happens. Creativity generally happens by yourself in the downtime moments, in the incidental moments in your life. And that is often part of the process that is either rushed or forgotten about. And how you're a creative person, you would understand this more than anyone else, that you need to carve out time yourself to think about ideas before you can come together with other people. And so this part, this step essentially was called fit your own mask first, which is all about coming up with your own ideas and interrogating your creativity before you share it with other people. And then you go on to mention the idea of plussing, which, which came from Disney. This is very positive, is that you get someone else's idea and you put an end on it. And you don't say, but what's wrong with it? You say, and wouldn't it be amazing if we could, you know, support up and coming artists or something of that kind. So if we're dealing with news, we are thinking about the other people's ideas and thinking about how we can improve them or make them better. Yeah. Creativity is is scary for a lot of people. And the reason why some people, going back to an earlier um, topic, some people don't think they are creative is because people are scared of their ego, of coming up with a bad idea, of being told they're wrong. So therefore you have to acknowledge that in any creative process. And the idea of plussing it is this idea where you take someone else's idea and you add on top of it, you plus it, you make it better. And that is the sort of environment that you need to create amongst lots of different mm. people in order to get really great ideas. Because as soon as you've got a pretty welcoming, pretty comforting, pretty emotionally safe space, that is where the best ideas can come from. So without running through all the other steps, I'll very briefly just run through the process. You then go away and think about the ideas, you sit with them, and then you do things like you put it through a filter, depending on what you want, or you stretch it out, depending on how many people will win or lose from this idea. And then once you've got that, you should have an idea that has been pretty rigorously tested because it's gone through the filter to make sure it's what you want. It's been stretched out to make sure the most number of um, positive impacts can be had from it. And then it's all about I hopefully launching it into a rising tide and then taking on board feedback and really listening with open ears, which essentially is, you know, not just hearing what people are saying once you put an idea out there, 
but actually listening to it and taking on that feedback. It's a really good framework and there's lots of aspects of it that I find fascinating. One of them is your belief that it is good to be bored. Tell me about that. I love being bored. <laughs> I think I'm slightly crazy, but I, I, it's something that's fascinated me since I was a, a child. And I remember when I got into my early 20s, I got to the age, well, looking back now at 41, thinking you know, I was old in my early 20s, but I started thinking, God, I've got these like interesting ideas or dreams. I want to start putting some of them into reality. And one of them was I'd always wanted to live on an island by myself, a deserted island with no one else around, just to see what would happen. So what would happen to my mind? And so I wanted to make myself bored, like properly bored. So I took no books, no music. I found an island and got permission from the Queensland National Parks to camp on it for a couple of weeks. And it was my first experiment with, ah, where does my mind wander? And kind of like how, how creative and interesting can the ideas get? And the spoiler is that some of it sucked. Like it was, it was a really hard time as well as a really enlightening time. But ever since then, I have really tried to, where I can, figure out how to fight against some of some of the, you know, our modern world's desire to stop us from being bored. If you think about it, every there a media has been created for every aspect of our life to fill in time. So whether that's you know radio in the morning when you wake up a podcast as you go to work, radio in the car, out-of-home advertising to stop you thinking too much as you're looking out the window, Netflix to watch when you get home, Netflix to download for when you're on a plane. We are almost designed, our modern life has been designed for us to never be bored. So you have to really try and fight against that to kind of find and take back moments where you don't have any inputs going into your brain mm. and you can instead just start having ideas flowing out of it. Yeah, it's a palate cleanser. My simplest t techniques for this as well is drives without putting radio on. You just go for like a long drive and you don't put the radio on or you don't put music on. And then often, even just walking the dog for me, I'll put my headphones in, I'll turn the noise cancelling on and I won't put any music or any podcasts or anything on. I'll just walk along, almost cut off from the world with my mind, just kind of thinking. And I, like it sounds simple the idea of oh, let's just stop and think or let's stop and daydream but you have to actually plan to be bored these days because it's it's almost an unnatural state now the books about ideas a lot of people have ideas they think that they're valuable bill gates memorably said he wasn't interested in ideas he was only interested in things that had, had been actualized why are Ideas so thick on the ground, but, you know, ideas that have been actioned and been made reality. Why, why are they so rare? Because it's, it's bloody hard. <laughs> Bringing an idea to life is really hard. And that's why I take my hat off to anyone that has the time, inclination, energy to get an idea off the ground. And an idea might be as simple as how you had an idea to start a podcast. That is an idea, but you probably also had 20 other or 50 other or 100 other ideas for podcasts that never went anywhere. How did you know? <laughs> Are you reading my mind? <laughs> it's okay to have lots of different ideas, but it's a real waste if they only ever stay as ideas. 
So if you just, if, if you, Hal, had always had an idea for a podcast and you'd had a hundred different ideas and you never actually got off your ass to call up someone and email them and say, hey, I want to be the first, you want to be the first guest on my podcast. That is, that's a waste. And that's when it starts to become just harder for people to kind of break out of the, the malaise sometimes of kind of coming up with lots of ideas, but never actually bringing them into practice. Yeah. That's um, your next book. Get off your ass. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice. I actually am thinking about a third book at the moment. Which of course is, you are. Which, yeah, which is which is quite fun to do, and that, that's that's you know coming back to one of the earlier conversations. That's kind of where my mind is always on. Where is this going, and what are we going to be talking about in a few years' time, and how can I add to the conversation? So, what's the number one mistake people make in trying to bring ideas into life? I think the biggest mistake is taking the first idea that they think of or the first good idea they come up with and trying to bring that one to life instead of actually spending time trying to massage and tweak it and test the idea to make it better. That's, that's I think, the, the biggest mistake is that good ideas are plentiful. The good ideas, most businesses, as Richard Branson said, are built off the back of a good idea. But if you can stop and think and process and allow it, everything to wash over you and bring it to other people and try and plus each other's ideas and try and put it through filters, you can then turn a good idea into a really great mm. idea. I think that's the biggest problem. Yeah, it's that pause, isn't it? It's that pause and it's that, oh, you know, this is okay, but but it could be better. Yes, yes. And it, it can evolve as you go and that, that's okay. Most most ideas evolve as they as they, they exist, but you can do a lot of that behind the scenes and save a lot of time and money if you just spend a bit more time massaging and tweaking ideas into better ideas. There's something about confidence and, and fear and self-belief here, isn't there? There's something there because perhaps one of the reasons people do cling to the, the idea that came to them and they cling to it too hard is that they associate themselves and their self-worth and, and the idea of modifying it. They feel like it might be a reflection on them. Yeah, I, I think confidence is a huge part of it. But part of the reason why I wanted to write this book was to give people more confidence in their own creativity because I actually think that sometimes people might come up with a good idea and think, ah, oh, that's, that's the idea, and then be they don't want to plus it with other people. They don't want other people to give feedback to it. Or if someone does, they take that personally. And so I think just having the confidence to come up with ideas, the more ideas you come up with, the more open you'll be to other people tweaking them and helping to make them better and to think you know to really believe that creativity is a group process yes there is a lot of personal input that happens into it but the best ideas should be a challenge of minds so you are of the media and you started as a journalist actually writing music reviews for rolling stone which i found interesting i found it very interesting that you mentioned that you had to write i think a hundred word uh, reviews and, and that taught you something. Yeah, it, it really did. So my, I got one of my first gigs being a music reviewer at Rolling Stone from Alyssa Blake, who is now a great theatre reviewer amongst other things. And she was the editor of Rolling Stone at the time. And I was about 19 or 20. I'd watched Almost Famous and decided that I wanted to be that kid. And I, at the time, was heavily into electronic music and dance music. And I wrote saying that she needed to have more electronic and electronic music reviews in Rolling Stone. And so I think just to get rid of me, she finally sent me one or two CDs in the mail and said, here you go, write some 50 word reviews on this. 
And writing a 50-word review is really tough. You can write a 500-word re- review quite easily because there's a lot to say about music and about albums and, you know, really crystallizing if it's good or it's bad and its context and where it's come from and who the artist is into 50 words is really, really hard. So I would spend weeks refining the my my copy down to just 50 words and that was a real skill for me that I learned at an early age around how to be how to be readable as well and so that's why I take it as a compliment when you said it's a killer thinking is a really easy to read book because I actually think that to me has been an art form of how to make something easy to read and kind of give it a good tone that people can you know easily digest it and I think a lot of that came from some of those early days of just trying to prune away words that weren't necessary and ideas that weren't necessary to really get to the nugget of a review. Mm. Yeah, in my case, because I spent quite a long time at university, I had, <laughs> I, had to, uh, I had to expunge that desire to obscure meaning and, you know, build yourself up with fancy language. Uh, lots, lots of words like therefore and things like that. <laughs> I still do all that. So you should read one of my reports these days. I'm still... I'm still susceptible <laughs> to that sort of nonsense. Anyway. Inclusion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What what are you gonna do? What what's the business? What what business are you gonna do next? Yeah, I mean I was I was very fortunate with Junkie to be able to give me options on what I want to do next. And that is, you know, the best thing that one of the best things that has come from that. And so it's it's interesting. So I'm I'm going to I, I really love writing books. Um, I'm already thinking of ideas for my third book, just because I books really are, it's, it's the last ad-free environment. And it's a really amazing way of being able to have a conversation with somebody about topics that I think are really interesting, but also be a bit of a magnet around people that also think in the same way around certain topics. So in the future, I will continue to write more books. I really love the idea of teaching people and trying to make things that complicated things as accessible as possible, as well as inspiring people. I'm going to continue to do remote working from over in Europe. And that is also a really great just experiment that one of the things that COVID has given us has been the ability to be able to work from anywhere. And then I will start something new. There's a bunch of things I'm kind of thinking. The way that I think about it now is maybe it's not going to be one big thing that I will start, but I will be involved in multiple smaller things and see what happens. But I'm 41. I have many, many years of working still. And I, there would definitely be media involved in some way with what I do, but I'm also waiting and biding my time, kind of looking around for where the next rising tide is going to come from. And I'm fortunate enough to be able to wait for the rising tide to come because I know that's probably the biggest predictor of business success. Just an interesting thought. You mentioned books are being an ad-free environment. Why is it that books don't have ads in them? <laughs> maybe that should maybe that's the 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 next frontier. I mean, at the back of my book, there are some ads for other books from the same publisher. So maybe there is slight ads in there. Uh, look, I think it's just there has to be some environments that are solely for conversations between people without brands being in, being a part of. And I think that's quite. That's quite wonderful. Just back to my core area and the core area of most listeners. So I, I, I must say my listeners are pretty many and varied and they don't all actually sit in news media, but a lot of them do. What are your thoughts? You, you've been a successful digital news entrepreneur. What are your thoughts about the sector? Oh, I think it's a 
extremely exciting sector that attracts some of the most interesting people. And it attracts the most interesting people who I think are there for the right reasons. That's what I've always loved about it. And generally those reasons are, it's not the place to make gazillions. It's, it's generally a place people are attracted to because they want to tell stories. They have a curious mindset. They need to find the answers to things. And it is so interesting. The fact that it has constantly shifting platforms to distribute the information, the audience is constantly changing, the mediums that they're going to change, that they access the information keeps changing. That is why I think it's such an exciting and interesting industry. I think right now it is in the middle of a very interesting flux where we are still grappling with our symbiotic relationship with it, with digital platforms in particular. That will continue. That's not going to change. We have a, a very close and interrelated relationship with both of the two major players as well as all the other smaller players like Twitter and Snapchat. You're, and you're talking TikTok. about Meta and Google. Meta there. and Google, yes. Yeah, the, the, the symbiotic relationship that we have. So in particular, one of the things that I have done since leaving Junkie was starting a thing called the Digital Publishers Alliance, which is a industry body of the leading independent digital publishers in the country. We've got about 40 to 50 members now and... One thing I love about that is it is a really broad church of publishers. But when we get everyone together, as we did in March for the first time, we actually realised that everyone has way more in common than we do as separate. Thanks so much for, uh, for talking to me today, Tim. Thanks, Al. I really enjoyed it. What a nice bloke Tim Duggan is and full of positive energy. You can sense that when you read his book. It made me feel the challenge is not so much having a good idea, but choosing between the multitude of possibilities and then committing. In Tim's way, he's reminding us that for your idea to be any good at all, you need to share it with the world. With that parting thought, I'll say goodbye for now. I'm planning a piece on the price of news. Probably that will turn out to be a newsletter rather than a podcast. So don't forget to sign up to Crawford Media on Substack if you haven't already. Thanks to Kevin for the music. 